DEA Sky Thorleafson presents Adaptational, the hardcover edition. Revisiting the best episodes of our first season, plus newly recorded content that was not featured during the original run. Join us at the end of the episode for our special new segment, The Appendices. For those seeking further insight into the source material, its history in cinema, and my personal connection to it. Now, enjoy the show. Today's episode was originally released on March 23rd, 2018. Long before any of this happened. Are you blind when you're born? Can you see in the dark? Dare you look at a king? Would you sit on his throne? Can you say of your bite that it's worse than your bark? Are you cock of the walk when you're walking alone? Because jellicles are and jellicles do. Jellicles do and jellicles would. Jellicles would and jellicles can. Jellicles can and jellicles do. Andrew Lloyd Webber, Richard Stilgo, Trevor Nunn, and T.S. Eliot. Cats. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the latest episode of Adaptational. My name is Sky Thorleafson, and I'm here to continue the discussion about the adaptation process. What's great about the stories that you love, and what could possibly happen to them if they were to be turned into movies. There's not much else that I really have to say about the last little while, but of course we do have some reasons to celebrate, because The Shape of Water won Best Picture, which is awesome. Thank you Guillermo del Toro for that amazing speech, this is a door, kick it open, and come in. I also recently got to see Annihilation, I never finished reading the book, but I did get to watch the movie, which is existential dread at its very best. I highly recommend you guys seeking it out. And lastly, of course, there was the release of the Infinity Wars trailer. All I have to say is, this is starting to look like the most screaming and painiest superhero movie ever. Vision screaming in pain, Doctor Strange is screaming in pain, Captain America is screaming in pain. Who isn't screaming in pain in this movie? I'm still looking forward to it, but I'm just noticing something. Oh, and also Black Panther is amazing and needs to be seen immediately. I just felt I'd throw that in there because Panthers seems to tie in just the slightest bit into this episode. Speaking of which, allow me to stop babbling on and introduce you to the subject of this week's episode, which I am so excited to do because it means so much to me. Over the last week, I have been revisiting a few friends of mine. Friends who are, quote, Feline, fearless, faithful, and true to others who do what jellicles do and jellicles can. Jellicles can and jellicles do. Jellicles can sing jellicles chants. Jellicles hold and jellicles do. Jellicles song and jellicles dance. Jellicles song That would be the original Broadway cast from Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats. Finally, we get to discuss a musical, and one of the most polarizing musicals of all time. I'll be using some snippets of music from different versions of the show just to give you guys an impression of what the show is like and the impact that it left on me. So, what can I possibly say about this particular show? 
aside from the fact that people seem to either love the show or are completely baffled by its very existence. I'm speaking, of course, from a modern perspective, because this is still one of the most renowned and famous stage shows of all time. It won seven Tony Awards back in 1982. However, in the modern era, people seem a little more divided. At least in North America. In Britain, it might be a completely different thing, since the video production actually appears on British iTunes, but not here in Canada. Sometimes I have to wonder if I'm the only 20-something-year-old man in Manitoba who still loves this show to this degree. I have known this show since I was seven years old and my parents introduced me to the soundtrack. I only became an ultra-fan of the show by the time I was 15 years old when I revisited the direct-to-video adaptation of the show, which at the time was available on YouTube, but is now only able to be shown in small clips on the Cats the Musical YouTube channel. It's still available on Blu-ray and DVD in case anybody was interested in checking it out themselves. But let's get back to that later. It's time to talk about some spoilers. Actually, it isn't, because there are no spoilers for this show. Hardly anything that I say about this show and what happens in it will retract from the actual experience of seeing the show itself, so long as you are prepared to experience something very weird. Cats is about cats. Shocking, I know. But specifically, it is about one clouder, one tribe, one clan, whatever you like to call them, of jellical cats. Jellical Cats is the name that a typical house cat uses to describe their species. And on this particular night, this particular clouder of cats has gathered together in a junkyard to acknowledge the passage into the heaviside layer, what is essentially the choice made by their patriarch, Old Deuteronomy, of which one among them will ascend to a high, honorable afterlife. Several individual cats essentially audition for the honor of being chosen, but none of them appear quite as frequently as a particular sad and very morose feline by the name of Grizabella the Glamour Cat. In the course of her life, Grizabella has left the community, pursued her own goals, and now lives as a societal reject. However, she returns again and again and again in an attempt to speak to the other cats who have rejected her about her life experiences and what it means to be alive, what it means to remember. And all of this over the course of a two and a half hour show that is two parts cabaret, one part pantomime, almost entirely fairy tale logic, and all of it incredibly beautiful if you are open to what it is offering. The show is based on the poetry of T.S. Eliot, specifically his children's poetry book, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, although there are also references to poems such as Rhapsody of a Windy Night and Four Quartets. In this case, Eliot's poetry is a satire or a parody of London society, where each individual cat who is given a name in the show essentially has a specific part in the society that they live in. And that society is an immediate reflection of the human society around them. Nearly all the show's lyrics come straight from this particular poetry. 
But what Andrew Lloyd Webber and the original director of the Broadway show, Trevor Nunn, decided to do was give it a mix of different time periods and different styles in terms of the music that is being presented. You can hear more about my discussion about how the show, from my perspective, honors Elliot's vision and Elliot's ideas on a blog which I wrote back in 2016 called Reminiscenes. Instead of focusing on that, though, I want to focus on why I feel this particular show succeeds on its own right. I have seen this show live twice, though never on Broadway, but including the four times that I've seen it in the last week in preparation for this episode, I've probably seen the video somewhere in the three dozens range. Can you tell I'm a little obsessed? And it's from watching that DVD between the ages of 15 and 24 on a consistent basis that I get my understanding of all the nuances of the show. At this point, I've probably memorized the entire choreography. I can't dance to save my life, but I know it. Focusing on the music, however, this is one of the most fascinating and most diverse scores you could ever find in a musical of any kind. In order to match each feline's personality, each of them is given their own musical style to some extent. You have your typical chorus numbers and show-stopping numbers, However, there's also pieces that are reminiscent of blues music, of jazz music, of rock music. There's a weird opera in the middle of the show. There are some very frequent ballet sequences. You largely get your own sense of a character from the way that they are presented throughout the show. And each individual cat appears only for a short period of time, unless, of course, they're a chorus member or they have a key part in the climax of the story, which culminates in the song Memory. Just to give you a sample of the kinds of characters that you meet in the show, however, some of the highlights of the show have always been Gus the Theater Cat, who is an older, more weary individual compared to all the other more lively characters in the show. But he lived in the era of classic theater, of the thespian era, of Shakespearean power, who looks on modern performing cats and thinks, They don't understand what we went through back in the day. And he's the one who actually performs the opera piece, the most consistent of which is in the form of Growl Tiger's Last Stand, which is hilarious and dark at the same time. On the more absurd side of this society, there's Mungo Jerry and Rumpelteaser. These two are pickpockets, thieves, literal cat burglars. They're two of the most agile and quick-witted of all the cats, whenever they're not being cocky and acting like idiots in their spare time. They're prideful, obnoxious, very often they don't make the smartest decisions. Rumpelteaser's almost always wearing a ring of pearls around her neck. Kinda giving yourself away a bit. They're the characters who are most obviously meant to be comic relief. And on the complete opposite spectrum of that is McCavity the Mystery Cat. Hands down the creepiest thing that has ever existed in a Broadway musical outside of Sweeney Todd. There's a rather amusing image in the video where you can actually see a wanted sign which says, Wanted, Macavity, for everything. You look at that and you think, oh, that's ridiculous. Oh my god, that's so funny. Wait a minute. You mean everything? Everything? Including that? Oh god, hide your wives and kittens. 
I'm not exaggerating either, people. They do go that far in this show. Each of these characters leaves a very specific impression on every one of the audience members, although usually it's to an exaggerated degree. The only other named characters with a very subdued personality, aside from Gus, are Grizabella and Old Deuteronomy, who is essentially the priest, prophet, and philosopher in the community. Those are the characters who you will remember the first time you see the show. The second time you see the show, or the 34th time in this case, you start to get to know the ensemble. I can name every single one of them. The one with the black eye patch over his left eye, that would be Alonzo. The all-white ballerina who's completely silent throughout the entire show, that's Victoria. The narrator of the show, the black and white MC essentially of this cabaret, that's Monkastrap. The kitten with the red and black spotted hair and the eyes that stare straight into your soul, making you question your very existence up to this moment. (coughs) Sorry, got a little distracted there. That would be Jemima known to American audiences as Syllabub, which is very insulting considering who names their cat after a British dessert. When you know the show and the characters as well as I do, you start to pick up on all of their nuances. And this is where I have to give a lot of credit to every single actor who has played any of these roles ever. Because this show is one of the most physically challenging that anybody could have asked for. Every single one of these creatures has to have their own personality. They have to emulate a certain image and remain memorable and identifiable throughout the entire show. They do this not simply through their vocal talents. They do this through their posture, through the way that they dance, through the way that they move their bodies and their faces as individuals at different moments. You can always tell when each individual one of them is feeling different emotions, whenever they're frightened, intimidated, excited, elated, curious, enamored, in wonder with the world around them, or in a completely melancholic state. The makeup helps to some extent, but in this case, you need to have the physical and mental prowess in order to inhabit the character and give it its own life separate from every other character on screen, or on stage. This is very much, after all, a dance-oriented show, so you need to be ready to express yourself not just vocally, but physically. Unfortunately, it seems to modern audiences that that's not quite enough for them. You can tell because, comparatively speaking, the latest incarnation of this show on Broadway, which opened in 2016, closed in December 2017 after approximately 500 performances. Compare that to the original run of the show, where it ran from the year 1982 to the year 2000. That's the fourth longest run of a Broadway show ever, aside from The Lion King, Chicago, and Phantom of the Opera, which is currently on its 250 billionth performance, I believe? And you notice one particular thing consistent throughout those three shows that are higher above it, which is a very clear narrative structure. Beginning, middle, and end. Character wants something. 
character almost gets something. Character tries to get something again. Sometimes the character fails. Sometimes the character succeeds. In the case of Cats, that narrative structure exists, but it's not as obvious because certain characters don't appear as frequently throughout the entire show as most people who watch a Broadway musical want to have. Nearly all of the sequences in the musical are vignettes, designated for specific cats at specific moments to display their different personalities. And that doesn't appeal to people who are more narrative-driven or more plot-driven in their understanding of musicals or even movies. Also, I feel like too many people are getting hung up on the costumes. Yes, they're wearing unitards. You've seen weirder stuff in Cirque du Soleil. Get over it. My defense of the show might not be the strongest, but I feel like it is the most representative of why I react so strongly to it. The people who love and admire this show on the same level as I do don't go for any kind of intrigue. They go to experience the world. And more specifically, they go to experience the characters. The show is far more emotionally impactful if you allow yourself to let your guard down and to empathize with these characters. The story arc, as simple as it is in this particular show, operates entirely on the emotional response that you have to individuals, especially to Grizabella, based on what you understand to be their lived experiences, their understanding of how life is. I always make an effort to return to the DVD that I got when I was 16 years old at least once every year. Part of this is because of the choreography and also because of the satirical element that Eliot's poetry provided. But more than those things, it's because of that sense of empathy. I always remember specific character beats and certain things that each individual does. The way that they snarl in the face of danger. The way they look down in shame whenever they remember a past life. The way they make you feel when you stare into their eyes. Seriously, how did she get those eyes? She's like the Audrey Hepburn of cat people. If you're able to let your guard down, if you're able to look past simply the set decorations, or the costumes, or anything that separates this particular show from the traditional show-stopping Broadway musical, it is very easy to become immersed in the society, and it is very easy to connect with each individual character over time. That may be something that is very difficult to do the first time you see the show, unless you were around six years old the first time you saw it or listened to the soundtrack. But allow me to give you my experience with the show. I first saw the show performed live when I was approximately 10 years old. After that point, I don't remember returning to it until I was 15 when I saw the TV film for the first time. And while I may have had similar reactions to the things that I have mentioned before, bafflement, confusion, generally not understanding what's going on, I ended up returning to it, and I never left it. Or maybe it never left me. If you do end up seeing the show for the first time, please send me an email to discuss your personal impression, the impression that it left on you the first time you saw it. However, if you are watching it the second time, if you're one of those people who was baffled by what you were seeing on stage the first time you saw it, I have one suggestion for you. 
If you go back to watch the television film, don't just focus on the characters you recognize. Watch the people in the background, the ones that don't necessarily get named on stage, and you'll be able to see each one of them becoming their own entity, the way that they react to one another, and the way that they add to the experience along with the name actors or the characters who take the spotlight on specific occasions. Each one of them has a story to tell, if you're ready to watch and listen. So, let's take a break now. When we come back, we'll be able to discuss more about a bit of a bad habit that I'm getting into, and why this particular potential adaptation has me asking a large number of questions. We'll be right back. Old Deuteronomy's lived a long time He's a cat who has lived many lives in succession. He was famous in proverb and famous in rhyme. A long while before Queen Victoria's accession. And we are back. Uh, since I don't have Ken Page's soothing voice to introduce you to Act 2, I'm instead going to own up to something. There's a bit of a problem with this show wherein the first three episodes are yet to be made into films. But the last two, and this one, have all been very likely to happen in the next few years. And of all the news that I've heard so far, Cats is the closest that we've gotten to a confirmation that this adaptation is going to happen. Back in 2016... Andrew Lloyd Webber and producer Tim Bevan started to reignite discussion about a potential screen adaptation of this particular musical. It hasn't officially been greenlit yet, but that's not stopping them from moving ahead with it. According to a Daily Mail report from this year, from January 2018, there are apparently reports that Webber is writing new songs for this particular musical, and they are currently in the process of casting. I'm not sure how skeptical I'm supposed to be at the moment. If you can't tell at this moment, this is probably going to be the most personal episode up to this point. Maybe leave an email for me suggesting whether or not this was the best episode or the worst episode as a result. Or it can be somewhere in the middle, I don't know. The recency of this report, and the likelihood that this is going to happen, was the main reason why I wanted to do this episode, which I was especially passionate about, now as opposed to in several weeks' time when we could get more updates. Now is the ideal time for me to start theorizing and wondering how this is going to happen. Because as of this moment... The Daily Mail report is a little vague on the details about what this particular adaptation is going to look like and is going to feel like. Before we get to that, though, I need to first emphasize the immediate question. It's been about 35 years since the original Broadway production premiered. Now, it's understandable why they're trying to adapt it right now, considering how the musical has kind of risen into a new renaissance. First of all, with La La Land nearly winning Best Picture in 2016, and then, just last year, with The Greatest Showman making a bucket load of money and selling their soundtrack and streaming their soundtrack, apparently, 
according to Hugh Jackman, one billion times. You know what, Jackman? You earned it. That opening number, The Greatest Show, is permanently stuck in my head. It's officially part of the soundtrack of my life. Still, 35 years is a long time to wait. I understand that there are musicals that have been longer to adapt in the process. However, I will say that because of the reception, the polarized reception of the most recent interpretation on Broadway, people are a little bit more quizzical, a little more polarized about whether or not they want to see this happening. Even compared to other Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals, this is not the one that is at the forefront of people's minds. Speaking of which, let's talk for a little bit about Andrew Lloyd Webber himself. You may love or hate Andrew Lloyd Webber both as a public figure and as a composer, but there's no question He has popularized the musical in a way that no other recent living composer has done. Even Stephen Sondheim has more of a cult following compared to the number of people who have seen and rapidly talk about Weber's musicals. I'm not a huge Weber defendant. I like most of his shows from his heyday, which is in the 1970s through to the end of the 1980s. It's from that era where we get his most famous musicals, and from which all of his most famous film adaptations come from. Although, to be exact, even when you look at the film adaptations that we've gotten, it's difficult to find one that people have an absolutely strong opinion about, and a positive reception on all fronts. Jesus Christ Superstar is probably the strongest in terms of the audience reception. It's a very powerful discussion about the relationship between Jesus Christ and Judas, and the soundtrack is incredibly popular, no question there. I just don't know if I see as many people talking about it in the modern era, unless it's a more cult following, comparatively speaking. Alan Parker's adaptation of Evita is the highest grossing adjusted to inflation. The casting is solid, Madonna is good, Antonio Banderas is better because he's Antonio Banderas, but even though I feel that Evita's score is the strongest that Weber has written outside of Cats, I don't remember as much about the plot or the impression that the character left on me as a result. And then you have Phantom of the Opera, Now, I'm going to say this much. I know a lot of people who do admire this particular adaptation by Joel Schumacher. I had a very strong emotional reaction to it when I was 12 years old. It was one of the first films that actually made me cry. Because The Phantom, in the musical, and to a lesser extent but enough of an extent in the film, is a sympathetic character. And it hurts to see him in pain because of the way that people reject him. That was my reaction when I was 12 years old. I rewatched it when I was 16 and had no such emotional reaction to it whatsoever. Probably because I was bawling my eyes out watching Vera Castellan and Elaine Page singing Memory for the 26th time. The Schumacher film can try to be as spectacular as the stage show, but having actually seen it on Broadway, there's a reason why the musical is considered spectacular and you rarely hear that description associated with the film. More than the other film adaptations' reputation, however, 
Cats has an extra problem in terms of the adaptation process because there are so many different variations of the show. You practically need to keep notes on which version of which song is in which different production. Okay, is this the original London version which features the ballad of Billy McCaw? Is this the Broadway adaptation where Mungo Jerry and Rumpelteaser don't show up at all? Is this the Australian version of the show where instead of the Rum Tum Tugger being a ripoff of Mick Jagger, he's supposed to be a rapper? Just speaking for myself, I will take the Rolling Stones over Kanye West anytime these days. Or is this the Broadway revival of the show, which features, instead of Growl Tiger's Last Stand, the awful battle of the Peaks and the Pollicles. Now, if what I understand is true about the Broadway revival, it is actually replacing Growl Tiger's Last Stand and has... Gus the theater cat narrating the events of this particular story. That makes much more sense than it does in the video production. The depiction of the awful battle in the video is the only time that I actively think to myself, oh, this is bad. Michael Gruber is hilarious as Monkastrap, reacting to the insanity that is happening around him. But other than that, it's just random bunches of cats with boxes on their heads, pretending to be dogs, only to be stopped by an accidental superhero. It adds so little to the actual context of what is happening on this night. There's no proper transition into it. It just kind of happens, and you're left to question why. It's kinda dumb. And it's also slightly racist. Well, technically, both songs are kind of racist. You could probably just get rid of that song entirely and not miss too much. I've kind of been dancing, no pun intended, around the actual adaptation that is going to be happening. And that's because there are certain things that make me wonder about its potential to appeal to a modern audience. Two words are holding this adaptation back from me being completely convinced of its potential and its success. Live action. This seems very incongruous. According to the Daily Mail report, which is not entirely well-sourced, so it could be unreliable, but I'm using it as a jumping-off point, as sort of a hypothetical discussion of what could happen. According to a specific executive, this particular production will be a combination of live actors and computer-generated images. There are two potential ways to interpret this. The one way in particular that I'm scared that they might go is essentially just a live recording of the musical, of which we already have a very good version. One of the contradictions of this report is that apparently the executive that the reporter references, but never officially names, one of the things that this executive says is, There will be dancers performing all of the stunts and all of the different routines that we associate with the show. If you're looking at adapting the Broadway show and showing all of these characters dancing live in the leotards, in the wigs, and in the makeup, you're basically reverting to a technique used in the silent era. 
It's basically the essence of you literally have to feel that this is an impressionist interpretation of the story. Theater is subjective. You're able to suspend your disbelief because of the limitations of the theatrical experience. You're willing to accept that these particular people behaving in this particular way are feline because you are willing to suspend your disbelief. You're willing to invest yourself in the impression that they leave on you as these rather bizarre but very interesting characters. The live-action element doesn't bother you so much on stage. I can see it potentially bothering people, however, in a film. From my perspective, that doesn't make sense because it doesn't feel like they are progressing, they are moving forward with the material. We already have the video. I love that video. They got the right actors to play the characters from different productions throughout Europe and the United States. They got the right orchestration, an updated orchestral musical score. They got the right person to shoot it in Nick Noland. Some of the editing is a bit off, and the effects are very dated. But in this case, this is one of the few cases where I'm able to overlook those technical aspects because I respond so strongly to the material. I personally wish that they would actually release the soundtrack to the video as well as the original London and Broadway show. Unfortunately, the only clip that you can find on iTunes available right now is... The Jellicoe Ball, the instrumental segment from the middle of the show. See? That's a great composition. And it comes from a very entertaining live-action video. As a fan of the show, we don't need another version of that. The video is imperfect, it's a bit weird at times, but it's perfectly suitable for us. We don't need another version with live actors. And if you are going to do it with live actors playing these cats, you'd have to look pretty far down on my list of potential directors before you found Tom Hooper. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Tom Hooper directed The King's Speech. I am assuming that your face is just lighted up because you actually like that movie. He also directed Les Miserables. I'm sorry, what? Now I'm slightly exaggerating because I need to emphasize, I think that Hooper is a very fine director. I am of the impression, like a lot of people are, that The King's Speech is well acted, well written, a very strong piece of drama. And I even actually have to admit that I do admire him for taking Les Miserables, one of the most grandiose, bombastic, bestest musicals ever made, and making it slightly more personal to him, slightly more intimate. The way that that movie is shot and presented with long takes and handheld photography, it feels more visceral to a certain extent. I have not seen it since it originally came out, I don't know if Russell Crowe's singing has gotten better or worse over time, but I can freely say that I do appreciate his efforts. He's not weird enough for cats. You need a real character of a director in order to present this kind of material 
with live actors in these costumes in this setting to really sell it to audiences. If you were going to ask me who I would be casting or who I would hire as a director, Terry Gilliam. Done. He's worked on every Monty Python movie ever. He went crazy in the 1970s and 80s by making movies like Brazil, 12 Monkeys, and Time Bandits. And, although he never got to direct it, he was J.K. Rowling's first choice to direct Harry Potter. Because he is weird as hell, in the best way possible. Gilliam has such a wild imagination. He creates weird settings in terms of art direction and costume design, and the way that he draws his characters. If he was to finish The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which I understand is going to be released at some point either this year or next year, I would be very willing and very happy to see him take the mantle of cats. And if that was the case, people I feel like would be more open to the potential that this is just a Terry Gilliam movie. It's Andrew Lloyd Webber and T.S. Eliot's material, but it's made like a Terry Gilliam movie, which makes so much sense. If you aren't going to get Terry Gilliam, there's only a small number of other directors who could potentially pull that off. Maybe a Tim Burton could do it. Maybe Darren Aronofsky. I would even endorse David Lynch. I don't know if it would work, but it would at least be surreal enough and bizarre enough. You could get a really trippy version of the show, and people might buy into the idea that, okay, these people are just weird, but it works weirdly well. This is not me saying that Tom Hooper can't potentially direct this style of movie, but just looking at his filmography, The Damned United, The King's Speech, Les Miserables, and The Danish Girl. He's made well-respected movies, but they're all so grounded. They're all so formal and British. The musical is very British, but it's a British musical in a very different way from what Tom Hooper is used to. So I'm not sure if people, typical audiences, will be able to buy it if he was directing a musical live with these actors in these costumes in this style. But there is another potential, which is also heavily implied by the unsourced but potentially interesting idea that the executive mentions in the Daily Mail report. Remember, combination of live actors and computer-generated effects. Apparently, this same executive also said it will be like nothing that you've ever seen before. Well, I might differ a little bit. I think that some people might have seen something like this. Those being the people who were smart enough to watch Paddington. Think about this for a second. Paddington is based on a British children's book about an anthropomorphic animal, in this case a bear, who loves England and English society, but is also willing to be a little bit cheeky about it, a little bit bemused by it at certain points. And yet at the same time, he always comes across as the best example of a British person you could ever hope to meet, even though he is a bear, produced using CGI. If this is their idea of how to adapt this particular material, this is the best idea ever. Cats makes so much more sense as an idea for an animated film, which I should have actually pointed out earlier, is something that was considered back in 1997. 
Originally, the film was going to be produced by Amblimation, the same people who animated the first American Tale sequel, We're Back, A Dinosaur Story, and Balto. They didn't end up making it because the studio closed after Balto was a huge box office bomb. However, they were going to produce Cats in animation. And this is where you can actually progress and do something interesting with the material that Andrew Lloyd Webber and Trevor Nunn had not done up to this point. It would be progressing and changing the format of the show while also maintaining the surreality of the original Broadway musical without it becoming alienating. Assuming that Weber, Tim Bevan, and Tom Hooper are going in this direction, it would make so much sense to have dancers and actors performing in motion capture each individual cat's different movements, capturing their personality, and giving them their own specific touch. Then after that, if you can give them designs which are similar enough to the original costumes, but but different enough to give you the impression that this is a unique vision of the musical, you can give us an experience that the audience is unfamiliar with. After that point, you can also add in live-action elements and even have people, live actors, reacting to the way that each of these cats interact with each other and interacts with the world around them. CGI and performance capture has come such a long way, even since Gollum from The Lord of the Rings blew everybody's minds. Now when you look at War for the Planet of the Apes, which I'm still shocked did not win Best Visual Effects at the Oscars this year, it's practically impossible to tell the difference between when Andy Serkis is performing or when you are actually looking at a real ape. It is that visceral a connection. Now, Paddington does not have the exact level of realism that War for the Planet of the Apes is going for, but it doesn't matter because when you remember Paddington the character, you remember him as a character because of the smart writing, the endearing personality that he already has, and because of Ben Wishaw's very fine performance as the voice actor. You empathize with him because you feel his personality, and you sense what he himself is like. You feel as he feels at any given moment during the story. As I've mentioned before, Katz has the same potential for that kind of empathy. At the moment, I feel like there is a very strong potential that this is the method they are going to use to present these characters, especially considering the recent announcement that Tom Hooper is working on a TV adaptation of The Golden Compass. First of all, thank you. It's nice to see somebody taking Philip Pullman's material into a new direction and expanding it. And second of all, that's going to be a lot of digital animals on screen. Plus, Lin-Manuel Miranda as Lee Scoresby. This is immediately awesome. We obviously have the impression that this kind of material can be presented in a very interesting way. And if they're going the direction of CGI animals with human analogs in the center of it, I can see much more potential for Tom Hooper to pull this off in the same way that the filmmakers of Paddington did. However, now that we've gotten that out of the way, 
we still have questions that we need to ask. First of all, based on the article, I'm going to give this one question. Andrew Lloyd Webber is apparently writing new music for this show. Specifically, he's identified one new song, which is going to be sung by the cat, Victoria. Interesting choice. I mentioned earlier that Victoria is a mute character. She sings as part of the chorus, and she dances in order to express herself, but she never gets her own solo. Apparently, according to Weber, he says that there is going to be a twist involving this character. Uh-huh. There's a fair few possibilities of what that particular twist could be, and I can speculate for a fair while about it. It could potentially be that she's working for McCavity, in which case she would be singing her solo after his appearance, his very dramatic and frightening appearance. It could be something more spiritual in nature, considering that there are somewhat religious tones to the way that these characters interact with and almost idolize the moon. It could even be a sign of her maturation, because during the Broadway musical, she finds a mate, and they become connected with each other. I'm fairly open to any possibility in regards to this, because it's progression, it's a change, it's an addition to the material that doesn't feel like it's ruining the tone or compromising a character as of this moment. But if I'm to give my own personal questions to the filmmakers about what could potentially happen if this musical is going to be adapted to the screen, I would have to ask the more prominent questions regarding the elements that people wonder about the most in terms of how effective the show is on stage. First of all, we need to acknowledge, much like Les Miserables, it's two and a half hours of people dancing around and singing to each other with no written dialogue aside from maybe some rhythmic chanting on a certain occasion. This was confounding for people who were not familiar with Les Miserables prior to seeing the film, which really surprises me that there would be people who were unfamiliar with the musical prior to seeing the film, but it did still have a strange reaction in that sense. In the original show, for me at least, this feels more natural because cats are not entirely human. They are parodies of humans, but they do not act like humans. They do not have the same kind of human voices. They do not live in the same human style. So the fact that they are singing all the way through, that feels a little bit easier to accept. And there is potential that you can appreciate that perspective if you are presenting it in an animated form. But it might still throw people off if you have a human analog and they don't talk at all. You'd probably need to find some kind of balance where at least one individual is able to react as an ordinary human questioning what is going on. Or actually, I'm going to revert back to that. Don't do that. You can't have people reacting in an ordinary way. It just breaks any kind of suspension of disbelief. Just sing it all the way through, and if you market it the right way, it'll work. My second question, of course, is, is the movie still going to be set in a junkyard? Now again, I need to go back to the original show. How much does the audience's impression of the show depend on the setting of the musical? Well... Not very much. 
you can see little details in regards to the art direction in the video. There's the wanted sign from a cavity in the background, and there's even a license plate with the letters T-S-E-1, referring to T.S. Eliot. That's a funny gag, but I don't know if it would be necessary in this particular situation. If you were going to set it else places, it would have to be interesting enough. Because of some of the slightly more religious undertones of the show, you could set it in a churchyard or in an abandoned church itself, but then it would probably get accusations of sacrilege, so maybe avoid that as much as possible. If you want to go extra meta with the setting, you could set it in an abandoned theater. Next question. How many new characters are there going to be? You have 26 actors you associate with the original show. Are you going to keep that many cats, or do you want more? You could definitely go even further with the amount of characters that you could potentially have coming together in this specific community, although I do have to wonder a little bit, how much do you really need? If you get too many cats, you are not going to have as strong an impression of the most important individuals in the community. You don't get as strong an emotional reaction from those individuals as much as possible. It's not likely that they would want to add more when they already need to keep and maintain the emotional connection that you already have or could potentially have to the characters who are established and canonized from the original source material. Are you going to be taking songs away? As I mentioned, there's a very easy justification as to why Growl Tiger's Last Stand or the awful Battle of the Peaks and the Pollicles could be deleted from the score entirely. There could even potentially be ways that you could trim down certain segments of those songs, which could actually lead to a very different impression. I first saw Cats in Minneapolis around the age of 10 years old, and instead of showing the entirety of Growl Tiger's Last Stand, they featured Gus the Theater Cat singing the fake operatic section right around the middle of that song. And the effect was actually surprisingly very eerie and very haunting. It would be very different from the more comical, the more bombastic version of the show that he was playing in the original Broadway cast. However, it could still reflect the kind of impression that Gus the Theater Cat, as an aging individual who still has the audience's sympathy and the audience's empathy, that impression could be kept and maintained throughout his entire appearance in the film. But the big question that really needs to be asked for this particular adaptation to work is, who are you going to appeal to? The original show has a very broad audience. There are a lot of people who react very strongly to it because they saw it when they were children. There are other people, myself included, who, as they grew up, became much more impressed with the literary references and because of the connection they gained to the characters. Others respond to it because it gets kind of surreal and very dark in certain places. There are also fans in the furry community, but I don't feel like I'm qualified to speak on their behalf. If you go the CGI route, it's best to present the show not so much as a pantomime, but more as a dark children's film. 
I'm talking about 1970s British dark children's film, the era of Watership Down. If you have that kind of serious undertone to the more frightening sequences, with macavity and so forth, you can leave a very strong, very vivid impression of what those specific scenes felt like for a young child at around the age of eight or something like that. And you can even get a little bit edgy in terms of the way that Macavity is depicted and how certain female cats reacted to him. You need to give a specific direction to the way that you present the film, which allows the audience to be immersed in it, despite all of its tonal changes and despite the very broad plot that is happening around them. And I do personally think that children are the best new audience to introduce this story to, because they are more impressionistic. They're willing to suspend their disbelief, they're willing to embrace the strangeness of the scenario, but they're also interested in feeling a lot of different things. They're willing to feel sad if they see Grisabella. They're willing to be frightened by the sight of Macavity. They are willing to witness every single one of these characters and feel as they feel in the moment. Adults are a little bit difficult to sell this movie to, but if their children are interested in seeing it, and if you as an adult are willing to suspend your disbelief, you would be willing to watch this half-animated, half-live-action movie, and even have discussions with your children afterwards about how each character made you feel. This would be a really interesting discussion to have with somebody who was unfamiliar with the show but got introduced to it through their children or through somebody who had very strong attachments to it when they were a child. There's a lot of different subjects and a lot of different ideas that could be explored through this material regardless of the audience that it's trying to reach. You need to pick a minimum age that the audience needs to be in order to really connect with it. But anybody above that age who is willing and ready to experience something completely different is going to follow suit very, very easily. So, let's take our second break now. When we come back, I'm going to change things up a little bit and explain to you guys why this particular story is so important to me and why I chose to discuss it at this time rather than later. We'll be right back. Hello again. I'm afraid that the streetlights are dying, so we need to come very close to the end of this episode. And normally I would be doing a random casting postulation at this moment, although I feel like in this particular case, this is the most rapid-fire kind of impressionistic idea of who could potentially play each character. Because there's too much potential to include so many different actors who are equally talented in this particular scenario to play each individual character. And the way that certain characters are presented, you could see any number of actors playing those specific characters. 
just looking at the impression that is left by Strap, the narrator, the Rum Tum Tugger, the rock star, or Skimbleshanks, the railway cat, you could easily transpose either Hugh Jackman or Lin-Manuel Miranda into any of those three roles and it would work perfectly well. Only a couple of other actors and characters do work very well, but in this case, because Tom Hooper is confirmed as the director, you can go back to Les Miserables and thinking about all of the established Broadway stars who have played in that particular film, and specifically, wouldn't it be amazing to get old Deuteronomy being played by Colm Wilkinson, the original Jean Valjean, and the priest in the film adaptation? He's got the perfect vibrato and the perfect sense of the age of the character, and he's never, to my understanding, played old Deuteronomy before. Also, Samantha Barks, aka the best Eponine ever, could play any number of the characters, any number of the female characters. Also, if you want to go extra meta with the casting of Gus the Theater Cat, get Daniel Day-Lewis out of the retirement, because that would be absolutely hilarious. But those are the only impressions that I really get from seeing any one of these characters and the idea of who each character could be played by. And the fact of the matter is, I'm kind of glad, to some extent, that I'm not casting this because I would be too biased. Even though I have a very long history of loving this show, admiring its artistry, and even wanting to make it. I revisited Cats for the first time when I was 15 years old. This was around the time when I was starting to gain my own idea of what I wanted to make as a filmmaker. It was around that time when I also saw Pan's Labyrinth for the first time. I actually give credit to both of those films for getting me more interested in writing stories that are predominantly female-driven. And for a very long time, I really wanted to be able to make this particular musical into a film in my own right. To be perfectly frank, it is somewhat similar to the scenario that I have been discussing throughout the entire episode. These impressions about setting, about characters, about all the different potential scenarios, they're very similar to what I had in mind when I was wanting to make this film myself. By watching the video so many times over the course of a few years, I was gaining more perspective on what I would believe to be an incredible sequence of events, how each individual scene would be staged, how they would be designed, and how each character would change, how they would evolve into something that was familiar but gained new insight about what their history was, what their personality was like and how they made the audience feel. The problem is, even though I love these characters, I can't lay claim to them. They're not mine. Only the impression that they left on me is mine. I may claim to know the characters very well, but that's only because of the video, which has left a very specific impression on me. The impression that it left on me is very different from the impression that it left on many other people. It's the reason why I don't have a specific actress in mind to play the most important character of the show, Grizabella, or even an actress to play my favorite character in the show, Jemima. 
The impression that Elaine Page, Vida Castellan, and Helen Macy, the singer who voice-dubbed Jemima in the film, the impression that those three left on me is too strong an impression that I can't shake. Even Sarah Brightman, who you've been hearing a little bit throughout this entire episode... That's the one. Brightman is an amazing singer and a very talented actress. Her performance on the original London soundtrack is impeccable. But the impression that the video left is too strong. I'm too biased in its favor. I would have too much bias in terms of who I think could play those two particular characters. If you want to see a show done As much as I would have wanted to create this particular vision that I had of Cats sometime in my adulthood, I don't have the opportunity to, and I don't feel like at this point in my life, I have the right to. At this point in my life, it's become necessary to expect the unexpected, to be ready and willing to see visions of material that even if you have a very strong impression of it, someone might have a completely different impression of it. And when that someone or someones is in charge of the film adaptation, you have to be ready and willing to embrace something that you were not expecting. What is actually very entertaining about the recent reports about cats is that they're very vague. It's a lot more entertaining to postulate what could happen than it is to absolutely know what is going to happen. That's why I'm glad that I got to this episode now, as opposed to later when more concrete information is given about casting or impressions of what the show is going to look like. If I do find out any more news about this potential movie, however, I'm probably going to be giving updates on this uh, podcast as much as possible, so I hope that you guys can tolerate that just a little bit. This show means so much to me. It has meant so much to me throughout my life because of being introduced to it at a young age and revisiting it constantly for years and years afterwards. It's the same kind of passion that any number of people have for comic books, for Disney films, for fantasy literature, and for any number of other source materials, even other musicals. But even in my passion, I need to acknowledge, sometimes it's best to be surprised by something that you don't know is going to happen. I guess my hope in presenting this episode was more to promote the idea that there are other impressions of this particular musical. As divisive as it can be, it can mean so much to so many different people throughout its existence, from its first performance in the West End in 1981 all the way to the present day. I hope that my impression of this particular show has gotten other people interested in checking it out, potentially seeing something that they haven't seen before or getting a new impression of it. As for the film, all I can really say is, Mr. Bevan, Mr. Hooper, Mr. Weber, I salute you. I wish you good luck, and I look forward to finding out more about this musical and what unique impression your vision of the material can leave on me. In the meantime, we're in the dark.
staring into the moon, searching for the meaning of happiness, waiting for a new life to begin. Farewell, my friends. I'm sure I'll see you again soon. again and welcome to the appendices the segment where i look back on my old content and either expand on the subjects i couldn't discuss before or just generally rip the episode you just heard to shreds how naive can this schmuck get i'm on the fringes even though i covered many subjects in connection to cats and therefore should consider this a successful episode my opinions about the show and its adaptation haven't aged as well as I had hoped they would. As the show does for average audience members, this episode has left me polarized. Listening to it reminds me why I defended the show, but it also made me reflect on why I held on to it for so long, even as I had premonitions about what was going to happen to it. During the period between the release of this episode and a certain date from this summer that has been permanently burned into my brain, I was constantly trying to take the show down a peg in my mind so that the inevitable would feel less painful. Somehow, that plan failed miserably. But just for context, before we get to that unavoidable subject, I should first talk about the contents of the episode. An episode with a troubled history of its own. I went back over this episode many times while I was producing it. Most notably, I actually recorded about half of it twice. My initial draft was recorded to where I started talking about CGI. That's not necessarily the point that I was most concerned about discussing, though. I actually had a whole prelude recorded that was way more emphatic and excitable in tone, saying, oh, this is the best, it's the best, it's the best. And at a certain point, I was like, dude, chill. Do you want people to take you seriously, or do you want to sound insane? 
I've seen other people who like this show do their own intro to Cats in online video essays. They definitely sounded way too hyper, even for someone who liked the show as much as I did. My initial approach was probably the worst way I could go about discussing Cats. Considering how many times I emphasized that the show should be aimed at kids, I focused too much on how edgy the show got. As much as I think the late choreographer Jillian Lin was an irreplaceable talent, her dance work for the original show got very suggestive. Leaning into what I assume is the hot gossip influence that Weber initially pitched to Elliot's estate. Upon reviewing what I had recorded, I started to think, This is getting creepy, man. Your connection to this show wasn't because of a kink, it was because of the emotionality, the satire, and whatever story and themes you gleaned from it. So just embrace that. So I just started over. Sure, there were a couple of references to the edgier side of the show, like the costumes and the implicit history of Macavity, but they befitted the discussion. I also removed a running gag where at certain intervals a female voice would just interrupt me in conversation, like a manifest creature suddenly appearing in the studio, and I wouldn't even question it. Maybe it would have been funny, but running gags are not really my thing. Plus, it would have been a weird pitch for whoever I asked to voice the character, so I just eliminated it. The episode itself is still pretty flawed, though, especially in its early parts. The opening blurb has very little to do with anything. Why I equated Black Panther to this musical, I have no idea. And the dramatic pauses and sniffles at the end are not exactly... subtle. I admire the younger me for his sentimentality, but I've got a better way to be sentimental these days. You don't really care about that, though, do you? You want to hear what I have to say about... July 19th. The day it all went to hell. The day the trailer dropped. I can't even use a clip of the trailer here. Not because I don't want to get sued, I just don't want to subject myself to that thing anymore. When I first saw the trailer, I was... mortified. In shock. It threw me off my game for about two days. And a few of you out there questioning how I can dislike the movie if I'm one of those crazy folks who liked the musical and even thought they wanted to see the movie get made, clearly don't know how much of a difference there is between a Commedia dell'arte and a Lovecraftian nightmare. It's a bit funny looking at YouTube clips of the 1998 TV film now, specifically Elaine Page singing Memory and scrolling down to the comments section to see two different crowds. People who loved the show and were watching these clips to take the pain away from seeing the trailer, or people who saw the trailer first, wanted to see if the musical was just as disturbing, and were suddenly surprised by how much they didn't hate what they saw. It's always been clear to me that the reason why was a bad design choice on the filmmaker's part. These characters work better when the costumes and makeup suggest feline features, as opposed to when someone tries to modernize it in the wrong way. When I look at Elaine Page's Grizabella, 
With the rounded ears, the sparkly dress, and the smeared eyeliner from all the tears, that's a mood for more than a few people I know. It works implicitly. You recognize that there is a human element to her appearance, but you also get that she is playing the character. I see her, and I think, I may not know everything about you, but I'll listen to you. When I look at the trailer and see Jennifer Hudson's Grizabella, I want to board up my house, douse myself in holy water, and prepare for the impending invasion. Hudson is a fine actress and a powerhouse singer. The fault is that of whoever greenlit the design. Where does the human start and the animal begin? With this design choice, the characters have just become freaks. And not the kind of freaks that make you feel sympathy for their exploitation. This isn't the Elephant Man. This is the worst possible remake of Cat People. And somehow, the filmmakers were totally ignorant of the idea that people could react so violently to it. It was the trailer that really made me turn on Andrew Lloyd Webber as an artist I used to admire. I idolized the guy way more than he deserved when I was a teenager, mostly just because of this show. I don't love Phantom of the Opera as much as most, aside from having a compelling titular character and it working way better as a live production than just an album. And the two other Weber shows that I legitimately admire, Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita, were the result of a collaboration with the impeccable lyricist Tim Rice. Without Rice or Elliot's words to guide him, Weber's other shows kind of flounder. I saw a version of Tell Me on a Sunday at the Winnipeg Fringe Festival just days after the Cats trailer dropped. I couldn't stand it. Granted, it was poorly produced with buggy sound and out-of-range actors, but I also could not remember a single song from it. Weber's shows have none of the complexity of Sondheim's, and their spectacle pales in comparison to Les Miserables. The musical, not the movie. I did watch that film again, and it's such a mixed bag that I could only admire it in parts. Tom Hooper clearly did try something different from other musicals. He just picked the wrong musical to experiment on. Twice! And the fact that Weber agreed that this is how these characters should and would look like just makes me question his reasoning. It's been a turbulent couple of months for me, as I've watched both this movie progress and watched the world laughing in its face. A lot of people I used to follow on Twitter seemed to love this film ironically. I feel like the film has utterly failed in justifying the existence of the musical except as a punchline. It's always been a punchline to some extent, Everybody from Tony Kushner to the cast of Friends was poking fun of it back in the 90s. But these days especially, I associate a certain vicious tone with people who vehemently dislike this show's existence, something which the film has really amplified. I shouldn't assume that I would have set this film on the right course and made it into something more universally appealing. It's just unpleasant for me to have to see something I appreciate become warped into something that I didn't want to see. Somewhere along the way, the film seems to have lost the show's humanity. Unless, of course, that indicates 
that its main source of humanity was spared. I said in the episode that I continued to return to the show because of the characters, but if I'm being real, that's only half true. Even when I was younger, most of the characters were not the kind that I connected with. Most are self-absorbed, prideful jackasses. They show off their skills because it's the only thing they really care about. Not all of them are necessarily obnoxious in their presentation. Some of them are endearing, like Gus the Theater Cat. But the majority are only interested in accepting those who keep their place in the pride and do their duty. So my connection to the show is mostly focused on Old Deuteronomy, the archetypal spiritual leader, Grizabella, the outcast, the broken, the pilgrim in search of a home, and Jemima, the young saint who spoke up for her. Jemima was why this show stuck with me. As someone who felt left behind and rejected, I needed someone to tell me to stand up for myself, to embrace my scars and leave everyone else's opinion behind. She never says that in so many words. Her lyrics are all veiled metaphors regarding moonlight and the breaking dawn, but I understood them implicitly as words spoken to elevate people. I don't identify as a furry. I connect with monsters and animal-like characters in the same way that I connect with any other fictional character, on a conceptual, symbolic, and empathetic level. Still, as one of my favorite fictional characters, Jemima, as played by Vera Cassien, was vital in realizing something I yearned for. I saw her selflessness, her willingness to speak on behalf of others more than on behalf of herself. She was the most sincere character in the musical. Memory and Moments of Happiness, the two songs she's featured in, are the only moments that have a chance of matching any song from Les Mis. Both utterly gorgeous. Jemima doesn't seem to have as big a role in the movie as she did in the show. There is a character in the credits named Syllabub, but from what I can tell, she is no longer a primary supporting character. I'm guessing her role has been melded into that of the white cat Victoria played by Francesca Hayward. The movie seems to have expanded Victoria's role as another outcast, a lot like Grizabella. So if anyone is going to speak up for Grizabella in the film, it's probably going to be her. She also gets to sing the new song Beautiful Ghosts, which has nothing to do with T.S. Eliot's poetry. But if we're being real, the only poem that would really suit the characters in the film would probably be The Hollow Men. If Victoria is taking Jemima's place as the one who speaks for Jennifer Hudson's Grizabella, I'm totally fine with that. That means I can separate my reaction to the film from my connection to the show and the original character. Once again, this isn't the fault of the actor. This is just one instance where I feel quite protective of something that mattered to me for a long time. None of the other changes I proposed the film could make appear to have actually happened. Aside from the way they look, everybody seems to be speaking in dialogue more often than in lyrics. 
There's no apparent churchyard or abandoned theater or even a junkyard like the original set. It's mostly just the alleys and houses of London. And a milk bar, which I don't think actually exists, but whatever, they can make up their own rules, I suppose. And despite everybody having a lot of dialogue, they don't appear to have cut any songs. Even adding Growl Tiger's Last Stand with Ray Winstone, of all people, playing the dreaded and not-so-secretly racist pirate. The one positive is that I'm glad the actors I suggested for the movie didn't get shoved into it. The cast they got is insane on its own, and I don't have to worry about being haunted by a digitized Hugh Jackman or Daniel Day-Lewis. I would hope those guys would want to keep their dignity intact. The second I started watching the trailer of this film, I made a clear decision. I'm not watching this movie in theaters. If I watch it at all, it will be months or even a year afterwards, so that I can think on the subject with a clear mind and say whether or not the film succeeds as an adaptation, ignoring the fact that the alienating designs will ensure that it most definitely won't succeed regardless of how closely it follows the show. If any of you listeners do end up seeing this film in theaters, I'll pray for you. I may identify publicly as agnostic, but that doesn't mean I have no faith at all. And also, feel free to give me some hint at whether any of my predictions prove correct. It will allow me to prepare for the best and the worst I can expect. So that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you for listening. If you want to engage with this discussion in any way, if you have a suggestion for what subjects you'd like to hear more about, or what stories I should look into as potential episodes, please let me know. You can find me on Instagram at DASkyThor. You can like the show's Facebook page at Adaptational. And you can also send me an email at adaptationalpod at gmail.com. That's adaptation, A-L, pod as in podcast, at gmail.com. Our theme music is provided by the East Village Opera Company. Thank you very much to those guys. Next episode, I'll be returning to a relatively happy place. With the first episode in this hardcover series that best reflects where I intend to take the series moving forward. Plus, it focuses on a video game that I still admire a lot, despite some of its minor flaws. Coming back next week, it's my conversation with Harris Gale and Jackson McGilvery on Fumitu Ueda's Shadow of the Colossus. In the meantime, keep those pages turning, and I'll see you next time on Adaptation. Adaptation.